Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and grab yourself a copy of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Body Melt, Wonder Woman, Ice Cream Man, Christmas Evil, Dolomite, or my favorite, the Wisconsin Blood Trilogy of Blood Beef, Blood Hook, and the upcoming Blood Harvest. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. Today's episode is also sponsored by Geopetric. Geopetric loves your pet. Their goal is to provide quality, first, eco-friendly pet products. They offer stylish apparel to represent the connection you and your pet have. Geopetric is embedded with the conscientious consumer in mind. That's why their gear is made in America, providing fair wage employment using eco-friendly material, including recycled bottles and vegan cork leather. Geopetric is also extremely charitable. They continue to partner with animal rescue and adoption programs across the globe to support their fundraising efforts with donations. When you shop, you save. Shelter animals across the globe appreciate the kindness and compassion of their shoppers. Another cool thing about Geopetric, they allow you to pup cycle your old gear. Do you have old collars and leashes sitting around? Don't throw that stuff away. Send it to your pals at Geopetric to get an amazing discount on your next purchase. Get it? Pup cycle? Yeah, you got it. You can visit Geopetric on their website at www.geopetric.com. That's G-E-O-P-E-T-R-I-C.com. Geopetric. If you use the special promo code DOGENSTEIN20, you'll receive 20% off your next order. Dogenstein, of course, being the Instagram name that we use for our dogs here at the Shameless Picture Show. Uh, my dogs, Ralphie and Frankenstein. You can find them on Instagram under the name Dogenstein. So, once again, that's D-O-G-E-N-S-T-E-I-N-20, all one word, to get your special 20% off. So, once again, visit them at www.geopetric.com and find some cool stuff. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, 
please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Vyers and today I am flying solo. Um, things have been a little weird uh, with our schedules as of late, where Nick is doing his yearly plein air festival in Maryland, where he is, uh, in his exact words, being a literal carny, where he is uh, you know, doing everything that involves with running a festival and still running a public access television station. So the man is busy. Um, I've been pretty busy myself. I just came off of injury. I've been having issues with my knee, and um, so it's and we had a, a house guest for a couple for a couple weeks, so it just made uh, recording a proper episode very difficult. That being said, um, I didn't want to go without. And last week, Nick recorded his uh, I think really well done episode on his five favorite films, and I want to do one as well. And I've been thinking it's I've had the same probably top five films forever. And I stand by them. Um, nothing against changing your top five, unlike Nick. Uh, mine hasn't haven't really changed. But uh, I thought, if anything, I, I've never thought about my top ten. My my f- top four or five have always been solid. I've always, I've always been there. And I'll specify which ones those specifically are as we go along. Um, but I thought, well, let me do a little thought thinking and see if I can come to terms with a top ten of all time. Um, I don't really have them ranked. I never really like doing ranking systems. So instead, I'm going to do them in chronological order, from oldest to newest. Uh, and then on top of all that, I if uh, if there's time, which there should be, we'll see how long this goes. Uh, I've also got some reviews to do for you as well. I've got uh, um, a Criterion release that my wife and I both watched. But more importantly, I got a disc from Vinegar Syndrome that we also watched. So I guess let's... Um, Let's get going to our top 10, or my top 10. So first, going in order, from 1935, we've got James Whale's masterpiece, Bride of Frankenstein. You make man like me? No. Woman, friend for you. Woman, friend. Yes, I want friend like me. I think you can be very useful, and you will add a little force to the argument if necessary. Do you know who Henry Frankenstein is and who you are? Yes, I know. Made me from dead. I love dead. Hate living. You're wise in your generation. We must have a long talk, and then I have an important call to make. Woman. Friend. Now, I don't really quite know what else to say about Brightest Frankenstein that smarter people haven't already said, but it's always been one of the influ- most influential movies for me. 
Um, so much so that I even have a stitch tattooed on my wrist because of how much I, I love this film. And it taught me how movies can be magical and they can be surrealistic and scary and funny and pretty much everything. So Bride of Frankenstein, for those of you who have not seen the film, is a direct sequel to James Will's original Frankenstein. And in this, um, so at the end of Frankenstein... Um, we all believe that uh, Frankenstein's monster has been killed. Um, at the end of the film, the windmill that's on fire comes crashing down, and it's meant to believe that Frankenstein, or Frankenstein's monster, for being technical, was killed, and he is no more. But the success of that movie was more than anyone else had expected. And James Whale didn't really love making horror films. He was very much uh, a chamber piece director where he liked the big hoity-toity Hollywood epics. And personally, I've, he felt that the subject matter was below him. It's It just wasn't, it wasn't his thing. He wasn't much of a horror guy. But with the success of Frankenstein, he wanted, they wanted to make a sequel. So, um, so off the top, like just a bunch of the, uh, I think some of the most unique things in this film is not only they make a sequel and we find out Frankenstein's still alive, he wants, he wants Dr. Frankenstein to make him a bride because he's, he's realized that what he's truly missing in this world is companionship. If no one else will understand him, he should at least have another person like him that can understand him. And that's the basic premise of it. So, uh, Henry Frankenstein gets he gets his um his mentor dr pretorius together and they work together to make the monster a bride and some of the things i found really interesting about this is they tie directly they tie mary shelley in the movie begins with mary shelley telling the story of the bride of frankenstein and so elsa lancaster does does double duty as as mary shelley and the monster's bride um i also love um that James Whale is kind of lampooning himself just a little bit. James Whale is well, it wasn't known at the time, but he he's he was a gay man and often felt disconnected. It's the it's the thirties and homosexuality wasn't wasn't very accepted at the time, so he had to be very quiet about it. And I love that you know you can resonate the story of Frankenstein. Oh, the story of Frankenstein resonates with people because here's this this un, un this misunderstood creature that uh, can't find his place in life and just wants to find love. So that already you can kind of tie that into the plight of the of of homosexuality. But then he's kind of playing around with this concept of of gay parents in a way with with um sorry with Henry Frankenstein and Doctor Pretorius. Uh, and there's their relationship with each other and kind of taking this parental role over the monster. And I don't know. I just I think it's great. I love the original Frankenstein, but there's something about the Bride of Frankenstein aesthetically that just brings me back. I think it's significant. It's one of the greatest films ever made. Um, it's gothic. It's scary. It's funny. It's beautifully shot. It feels contemporary, even though the film is really old. Um, and I personally think... People that say they don't like old horror movies because they're boring haven't seen enough of them. Um, this film, I think, is 
is brilliant. Um, and it hap- it comes up very often where I just I have this movie in my head and I want to rewatch it. Everything from Boris Karloff's portrayal of the monster and how he's given a little more to do. Um, and you get to see a little more of the humanity behind him. Elsa Lancaster playing this frightened creature that doesn't understand who she is. And even she is afraid of Boris Karloff's monster. Henry Frankenstein not wanting to do another, to do this again, but feeling threatened. Um, I don't know, there's just a lot to love in this. And if you have not gotten around to seeing Bride of Frankenstein, I really recommend it. Um, as I've said before, I think it's one of the most important films ever made. And it's one that I absolutely love. It was a lot of fun being able to show Amanda the film. A couple years ago, she had never seen it. Or she'd seen bits and pieces of it. And everyone knows some of the iconic imagery from this movie. Everyone knows um, the monster, the, the bride, her bouffant hair. Everyone knows the it's alive scene. Um, it's been spoofed to death. Uh, people know the, the, the scene with the... Um, with the the blind hermit the, where he tries to become where the blind hermit thinks that the monster is 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 a mute doesn't realize a monster because he can't see and is trying to communicate with him so you have this scene between these two people these two people um one's deaf or sorry one's blind and one can't talk them trying to communicate with each other and it was uh spoofed so wonderfully in mel brooks young frankenstein I think people are going to be surprised by how much they recognize from this movie and how much other films have borrowed from it. So, my first choice is Bride of Frankenstein. And that's in my top five, and that's never left. The first gothic that I fell in love with was Bride of Frankenstein. So it was a boy, and I probably would have been about 12. Stayed up for it, and it was one of those late night Saturday horror things where they showed both. Uh, you've got Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And Frankenstein was a huge disappointment to me. Um, it, I'd been expecting, I don't know what I'd expected, but somehow what I wanted was, was much more than what I got. Um, Bride of Frankenstein, on the other hand, was delirious. Um, it had this very, very strange plot that I didn't understand as a boy, in which, you know, a lab has burned down already, you have uh, this mysterious Dr. Pretorius. I was never quite sure what he was doing with little homunculi, but there were these tiny little people and he was making them. And then he's working um, with, with, with Frankenstein to build a bride for the monster. And then it turns up and it's Elsa Lanchester. And it's my favorite, what is it, two, three minutes at most of film ever is between the cloth coming off and Elsa Lanchester coming to life and her seeing Boris Karloff.
screaming, him you know, hitting the We Belong Dead switch, and, uh, and everything going. That's, I just think that's perfect. Um, I had no idea what it was about, quite what had happened. And I felt afterwards like I'd watched something faintly dreamlike. The peculiar thing about Bride of Frankenstein was it stayed one of my favorite films. Um, I have seen it every few years, um, whenever, you know, whenever I could, in whatever way I could. And I even showed it to my daughter when she was about 11 or 12 and really into movies and watching her peculiar disappointment in it, realizing that if I'd shown her at that age, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, nice, big, amiable film with, with, with proper villains and things. She would have loved it. And instead, it was this film that is all atmosphere and all strange, slightly camp oddness. Um, and again, this, this, a plot that is almost impossible to describe because it doesn't quite make sense enough to be describable. It's like a dream on waking. You accept it moment by moment as you go, and then Bride of Frankenstein is done. The We Belong Dead switch has been pulled, and, uh, and it's all over. And you go, what? what was that? What was that? One minute where there's, there's the beautiful young Elsa Lanchester actually getting to act playing Mary Shelley, saying, oh yes, there's more. And the next, you're into this strange, hyperbolic, hyper-real dream world. And it's, I think it's magic. The next film is The Abominable, Dr. Fibes by Robert Faust from 1971. Probably my favorite Vincent Price role. And that's saying a lot because I absolutely love Vincent Price. He's probably... My favorite actor. What lovely music for a murder, or two, or three, or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife, no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, Doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we going to get him off this? You take his head, and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Dr. Vibes, who samples the finer things of life. his own inimitable way, and experiments with fascinating instruments of death. Well, what, sir? 
The Qatar. The time curses visited upon the pharaohs before Exodus. Nine shall die. Nine eternities in doom. The curse of boils, of bats. Frogs? Frogs, yes. And the curse of blood. of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere. Um, even bad Vincent Price roles are good Vincent Price roles, in my personal opinion. But the reason I like this film is it adds humanity to the monster, for lack of a better term. Um, I guess I really gravitate towards sympathetic monsters, now that I'm thinking about it. And while it's kind of hard to say that necessar- that Vincent Price in this movie is necessarily a monster, he is deformed, disfigured. Um, and one of Vincent Price's greatest qualities has always been his voice and this film really gets to show that so the movie's about dr anton fibes and trying to get revenge for the death of his wife and to do so he is trying to get revenge on the doctors who were trying to save her during surgery and they weren't able to um and dr fibes his face is horribly disfigured in a because of a car wreck that is thought to have killed him he is racing home to get to his wife, but this car, but he gets into this car wreck and disfigures him. And while he's trying to get home, like I said, the doctors are trying to revive his wife, and it's to no avail. So what he then does is he he goes out and he he recreates himself, and he recreates his face using prosthetics, and uh, he recreate in using using all the information he knows about. Um, music and, and acoustics he rebuilds his voice using the machine so anytime he needs to speak he needs to pull the machine up to his, his throat and speak so there's this great disembodied quality to Vincent Price's voice and it really makes it front and center in a lot of ways this film is a precursor to Saw because every single person that Fibes kills in this film he's got a very elaborate way to kill him and um, everything from like masks that slowly crush your head and elaborate uh, uh, schemes to drip poison onto people. It's very crazy. And um, if you had told me James Wan had not at least seen this film before he made Saw, I'd call him a liar because there's this... While the, the kills aren't exactly Saw-esque, but just the, the Rube Goldberg style of a lot of these setups is, is fantastic. And I love this film because while it's technically a horror film, it's not scary. It's really not. It's got a very British sense of humor to it, so it's, it's got a very dark sense of humor. It's got these amazing art deco sets where everything is over the top and crazy. Um, the All the deaths are inspired by the Ten Plagues from the Old Testament, which is just high art and crazy this movie is so high concept and it's so unapologetically pretentious and that's the reason i love it because it's showing what you can do with you can elevate the horror genre it doesn't have to be a man with a knife you know chasing teenage girls you can make art out of horror and this is an argument that horror fans constantly have um and I just love the character of Fives. He's not—he doesn't have a a blood fueled rage 
Like, he kind of does, don't get me wrong. But he's not just killing anyone. He's trying to just kill the people that he feels are personally responsible for the death of his wife, whether right or wrong. Um, and that's all he wants. His goal is to is to kill these these doctors. And realistically, he even gives a lot of them a way to get out of it. So it's like, if you can survive, congratulations. And it's his goal to kill these doctors and to be buried with his his dead wife, Victoria, and just spend and just he wants to be with her. And it's kind of beautiful. This monster just feels love. I keep using monster, but that's for lack of a better term, that's the best description of him because he's pretty horrific in this film. Um, and while it doesn't happen in this film, I always have a, a, a an association of somewhere over the rainbow with these movies, even more so than Wizard of Oz, because in Doctor Five's Rises Again, he sing he has this great scene where he's singing um, somewhere over the rainbow. This, this film is beautiful, it's funny, it's goofy, and I think everyone should go out and see it. Well, everything on this list, you should go out and see. But The Abominable Doctor Fives was one of the greatest discoveries of my teen years. Uh, next up is probably the film that I consider to be my favorite film of all time. More so for any reason other than it is the most influential film to me. Um, we have John Carpenter's 1978 film... Halloween. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm gonna wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. Everyone knows the story of Halloween. It's Michael Myers. He's escaped from a, a mental institute after killing his wife, or not sorry, after killing his sister. Um, and he escapes and focuses his attention on a young Jamie Lee Curtis. And just decides this woman is going to be my next victim. It's scary. It's a, it's it's amazingly made. It's effective as all hell. And I love the fact that what makes it truly scary is we don't know why Michael Myers has chosen Laurie Strode to put his attention on. But he has. It, they try to explain it in the sequels. Everything from Michael Myers being related to Laurie Strode to a curse, a thorn, and a bunch of other dumb things. 
But this film, if you just viewed in the context of that, it's he, she's just a random woman that he put his attention on. It is one of the scariest films that I can think of. And I love that. And um, it's one of the, it's pretty much the film that made me decide I need to go out and make films of my own. Um, it's, that's how inspirational it was for me. Um, it was in that moment in high school after seeing this film that I told myself, yes, I want to go out and make movies of my own. I know so much useless information about this film. I pretty much know every scene like the back of my hand. I've studied it. I've lampooned it up, recreated it. I have it tattooed on my body. I love everything about this movie, warts and all. And it's not a perfect movie. But I can't think of anything else that's had the influence on me. And it may, it's the reason I love John Carpenter. And as much as I love John Carpenter, there it might even be I don't know if I love a movie of his one of his movies more than I love Halloween, even though there's better movies. And there's ones that I probably enjoy even more. But none of them I love nearly as much as this one. And I watch it every single year, no matter what. Sometimes even once or t- more than once a year. Uh, everyone usually watches it on Halloween, which is what I try to do. But sometimes I'll just have a feeling that, you know, it's it's like a a a comfy blanket where I can just put it on and I know everything about it and it's comforting in its own weird way. And But yeah, everything from the score to the Dean Kundi's beautiful cinematography, which is very understated and does not get nearly enough credit for the way he lit this film. Um, yeah, you can, if you go and watch the couple films that I've made and then go and watch Halloween, the John Carpenter's influence is all over my work. Same thing with this next filmmaker. My neck, and this this film is also on my top five of all time. The next film is from 1981. It's Brian De Palma's Blowout. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. Yes, he says he pulled the girl out of the car. I would like you to forget about her. Yeah, that's what I heard just before the tire blew out. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say never happened. Still loose ends. Witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Terminate her. Terminate her. Palma's blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. Blowout was a film that I discovered in maybe late high school, early college. And it was and it was also around the time that I started getting into the Criterion Collection. 
and I wanted to, and something about Brian De Palma's work always pulled me in. I didn't know what, at this time, at the point when I saw Blowout, I hadn't seen any of his work, but I really wanted to see this film because not only the Criterion Collection released it, but then it's kind of this espionage thriller, not sorry, not espionage thriller, but like a political thriller that's also got elements of slasher films and horror movies. So it's all the things that I was interested in at the time. And since I was really into, um, process of filmmaking obviously the idea that there's a sound effects artist who records the sound of a murder by accident that really appealed to me so let me go back a little bit the movie's about a character by the name of jack terry played by uh, john travolta and he is a sound recordist and for low budget slasher films and things like that and the movie begins with this great send-up of uh, of cheesy slasher films um, where they recreate one perfectly um, about some killer trying stalking a sorority house. And it gets to a point where a woman's about to get killed and she screams and the camera pulls out and you see that Jack Terry and the producer are just sitting there watching the film. And he, the producer hates the scream, hates the canned sound of wind that he's used, and is pretty much saying, hey, these sound effects suck and you're not trying very hard and you need to go out there. You need to go out, not only find me a better scream, but then record better wind. It's the same wind you've used in the last three movies. So Jack Terry's being like whatever goes out to record natural sounds goes out to record wind in the middle of the night and it's something i've personally had to do for my own film so i've kind of felt a connection to that and while that's happening he hears the sound of what he believes to be a gunshot or maybe a blowout of a tire hence the title and uh he sees a car swerving down the road and flies into a river he without thinking about it jumps in and saves a young woman played by um nancy allen her name is Sally, and they get, she gets sent to the hospital, and we find out throughout the course of the film that she is a prostitute, that um, or male escort, what, or female escort, whatever you want to call her, um, who is with the governor, and um, it then becomes a a story of intrigue. Like, was this a tire that blew out, or was someone trying to assassinate the governor? How is Sally involved? I have, he's got the sound effects on his tape and he uses filmmaking and sound editing to help start solving this murder. It's also got a frightening performance by John Lithgow. Um, it's got, in my personal opinion, one of the most heartbreaking endings I can, I've ever seen. Um, and I just think this is one of the most beautiful films. Uh, and I, I love it. I love everything about it. Performances are fantastic. Um, the movie is beautiful. It's shot by Vilmos Zygmunt. Um, I wish I had thought to talk to him about this movie when I met him, but I didn't have a lot of time to talk to him, but I just wanted to talk to him about his, his style because what I like so much about this, the, the filmmaking style of John Carpenter and Nicholas Winding Refn, I can see in this film. So Brian De Palma and Nick, uh, and Vilmos Zygmunt just made some beautiful stuff together. Uh, this might even be my fav- my fa- my favorite Vilmos Zygmunt film. Once again, probably not necessarily his best, but one that I personally love because it's got a lot of style. I love how colorful it is. Uh, and then we ha- we can't talk about this film without talking about Pino Donaggio's score. This film would not probably have had the effect on me it did if it wasn't for Pino's score. And Pino Donaggio 
has scored so many fantastic films. He's done, among many, Don't Look Now. He's done Carrie. He's done Piranha, Dress to Kill, obviously Blow, which is what we're talking about. Um, he's done so many great scores. Hell, he even did the score for Seat of Chucky. Um, but the love theme in this song is beautiful. And my obsession with this movie extended so much that I was just watching YouTube videos about it. And I discovered a song called Sally Bedina by a band called Teakwood Gallows. And uh, a friend of mine, Cameron Masterson, I met, I reached out to him, told him how much I loved his song and that I would love for him to make a song for my film from the Darkness Theater. So I sent him the script. He wrote a beautiful song. And then he has done songs for two of my different films, all because of my love for Sally Bedina, the song he wrote, which I will play in here. Along with I'll play a little bit of Pino, I'll play a little bit of Pino Donaggio's score and then cut right into Sally Bedina. So there's going to be about a couple minutes of just pure music right here, but trust me, it's worth it. How are you doing? Hey. 
how are you doing, Sally Bedina? Sally Bedina. That's just beautiful. And for lack of a better term, that's the best way I can think of describe this film. Um, I, it's been such a joy of mine to be able to show this to people. I've gotten to show it to Amanda. I've got to show it to my good friend Katie. Um, we, we watched it not only on my couch at home, but we went out to go see it at the Milwaukee Film Festival on 35mm film. Um, I, I look for any excuse to watch this film. And to the, anytime I get a new TV or new sound system, whatever, this is my this is my demo disc. This is the one I test because it's a movie I know backwards and forwards. So if I need to know if I want to see how beautiful something looks, how how nice my new TV looks, I put in Blowout. Next up on my list is another rather influential film from 1984. This one's James Cameron's Terminator or The Terminator. In the 21st century. A weapon will be invented like no other. This weapon will be powerful, versatile, and indestructible. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It will feel no pity, no remorse, no pain, no fear. 
It will have only one purpose. To return to the present and prevent the future. This weapon will be called the Terminator. You're dead, honey. What day is it? The date! 12th, May, Thursday. What year? I'm here to help you. I'm Reese, DN38416, assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Your future is in its hands. I love the Terminator. It's something that me and my wife bonded over. We love the entire series. Hell, I, I, I will watch any of the Terminator films. I even like Terminator Genesis. But this original Terminator film is probably one of the most perfect films ever made of its type. Uh, science fiction slasher horror film i think it's it's brilliant um so the film if you have not seen the terminator it's one very surprising um and if you've been missing out on it because you have some preconceived notion of what it's going to be like go see it even if you only see terminator one i know a lot of people out there prefer terminator 2 terminator 2 is an amazing film um but i actually personally think the terminator the original film is the best of the series it's a science fiction horror film as i said it's about uh uh, a a cyborg assassin who gets sent back from 2029 to 1984 to kill um sarah connor the reason he's trying to kill Sarah Connor is in the future, Sarah Connor's son, John Connor, becomes the leader of a resistance movement that is able to stop um, Skynet, a a uh, artificial intelligence defense system that's become self-aware and controls all these killing machines that are trying to wipe out mankind. And the world becomes a nuclear holocaust once uh, Skynet releases nuclear weapons and destroys everything and people are becoming more and more scarce as these machines take over how cool is that but um so the terminator played by arnold schwarzenegger goes back in time it's a t-800 model um not that that's important it's just a useless piece of information i know um and he looks a human and he's going he's gonna go try to kill Sarah Connor, who's played by Linda Hamilton. And Linda Hamilton has no idea what's going on. She doesn't even have a... She's not dating anyone at the moment. She doesn't even, She doesn't have kids. She is a hard time believing that she is anyone of important. Especially that her... That a child she doesn't even know is going to exist um, is going to be so important. And then also going back in time is Kyle Reese, played by Michael Bean. Kyle Reese is a resistant fighter from the future who was sent back with one simple objective to stop the Terminator from killing Sarah Connor. Cyborgs don't feel pain. I do. Don't do that again. Just let me go. Listen and understand that Terminator is out there. 
It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop, ever, until you are dead. Can you stop it? I don't know. With these weapons, I don't know. Uh, he can't go back to the future, so he pretty much knows this is a death mission. He's either going to stop the machine and live out the rest of his life in the past, or die trying. And, um, yeah. This... James Cameron is a very, um, interesting filmmaker. Because he has made so many films, a lot of things that people love, a lot of things that people hate. He's made some of the biggest films ever made. Like look at the Avatar film. I don't personally think I am. Uh, I'm not a huge James Cameron fan. I like his films. I like the Terminator, um, both Terminator films. Uh, I like Titanic, I guess. But like this film is, in my personal opinion, the best thing he's ever done. Um, and I think it's just a perfect storm of trying to tell a very simple story, very well done story. He's um, got uh, amazing cinematographer Adam Greenberg is shooting this film, and I think the movie is is shot perfectly. It's stylistic without being too over the top. It's dark, but you can still see everything. And then the, uh, Brad Fidel's score for the Terminator is one of the best of all time. I will fight for that. It's one of the best of all time. Um, just even thinking about the score is giving me goosebumps. And I'm sure I'll pipe it in a little bit. episode any of them but the terminator is perfect it's perfect uh ne coming up next is from 1988 michael lehman's heathers it's a shame you can't see what our uh, fellow students really signed all right listen we students of westerberg high will die Today, our burning bodies will be the ultimate protest to a society that degrades us. Fuck you all. It's not very subtle, but uh, neither's blowing up a whole school now, is it? 
This film is one is in my top five. It's one of the films that's never left. I don't know what else to say about Heather's. We did an episode on it. Season one, episode 17 is all about Heather's, where me and Nick talk for well over an hour about how great Heather's is. So I'm not going to go into detail here, but it is one of the most influential films for me. The script, along with Kevin Smith's Clerks, is how I learned to write a, uh, write a screenplay. It taught me so much um and i still think it's as relevant now as it ever has been so michael weeman's film heathers is top five of all time next up is the only tim burton film on this list and while i do like tim burton um specifically i really love edward scissorhands this is the i think the best film he's ever made and probably continue to be the best film he's ever made. It's night from 1994, Ed Wood. Excuse me, sir? Yes? Um, well, I'm a young filmmaker and a real big fan. I, I just wanted to meet you. My pleasure. I'm Orson Welles. I'm uh, Edward D. Wood, Jr. What you working on? Well, the financing just fell through for the third time on Don Quixote. You know, I can't believe it. That sounds just exactly like my problems. It's the damn money, men. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. Ain't that the truth. Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal. But they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Ah, <sighs> Mr. Wells. Is it all worth it? It is when it works. You know, the one film of mine where I had total control, Kane, the studio hated it, but they didn't get to touch a frame. Ed. Yes? Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? is the, the true life story of filmmaker Edward D. Wood Jr., best known for making Plan 9 from Outer Space. Tim Burton tells his story because, uh, very much like Tim Burton, I was also inspired by Ed Wood, not necessarily his filmmaking. Uh, remember in, in college, I got to read, I read a book about Ed Wood. I don't remember which one it was. I think it might have been... Um, it was Nightmare of Ecstasy, which this uh, movie is inspired off of. Um, so when I was in college, I read bits and pieces of Nightmare of Ecstasy. And I just, I thought the person of Ed Wood was a fascinating, fascinating guy. Um, it's kind of hard to pinpoint why. Like, it's everything from his optimism um of even though he knows he's not the best... Well, actually, no, he doesn't realize he's not... His optimism is the biggest thing that attracts me to him, is he's not making very good films, but that doesn't matter. He's going to continue to try to make films. Um, he's... No matter what life throws at him, he wants to continue to try to make these movies for good or for bad. And that appealed to me as a young film student... This guy who, for all intents and purposes, was not a good filmmaker, would not stop making movies no matter what, appealed to me. It's also a bromance story between Ed Wood 
and Bela Lugosi, which Bela Lugosi is the biggest reason that Ed Wood got a lot of these films made. Even though Bela Lugosi was not a big star, it elevated his films to the point where people would watch them. Um, he never gave up. He was so unapologetically himself. And the movie does a great job showing that. Um, Johnny Depp plays the title character of Ed Wood. Um, and I know Johnny Depp is a very... Um, he's a very hit-or-miss actor for a lot of people. I personally think Johnny Depp's early roles are some of his best. I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, but he's transformative in this movie. I often forget that I'm watching Johnny Depp, and I just, I'm watching Ed Wood. I, uh, Martin Landau, who plays Bela Lugosi, is also transformative, where I never not think, oh, that's Bela Lugosi on there. Um, yeah, like, it's, it's, a lot of these films are just personal, and, um, that's why I, I, I like them. Um, I find something in them, and I am a big fan of Hollywood tales, movies about making movies, because I'm a film nerd. Those films don't usually do very well, but if you're into film like I am, movies about making movies are so very appealing. Um, and to this day, if I'm ever feeling down about where I am in my own career, whether that be podcasting or, or filmmaking, I turn to this movie, and it makes me feel better. And it's not like laughing at Ed Wood or any of that. It's, it's, it gives me the motivation to continue because I can remind myself that no matter what, good or bad, if I make a movie that's, say, as bad as Plan 9, people might still be talking about it. And that pressure of feeling like I have to make amazing films, not having that is weirdly appealing. Yeah. This is becoming a strange vent. Uh, uh, this, this episode is becoming a very weird thing of me venting about frustrations. But you're the ones listening. Thank you. Next up is, in my personal opinion, Kevin Smith's best film from 1997, Chasing Amy. What are you doing? Just bear with me here, all right? I want to put you through this little exercise. All right, now see this? This is a four-way road, okay? And dead in the center is a crisp new $100 bill. Now, at the end of each of these streets are four people. Okay, you following? Yeah. Good. Over here, we have a male affectionate, easy to get along with, non-political agenda, lesbian. Down here, we have a man-hating, angry-as-fuck, agenda of rage, bitter dyke. Over here, we got Santa Claus, and up here, the Easter Bunny. Which one is going to get to the $100 bill first? What is this supposed to prove? No, I'm serious. This is a serious exercise. It's like an SAT question. Which one is going to get to the $100 bill first? The male-friendly lesbian, the man-hating dyke, Santa Claus, or the Easter Bunny? The man-hating dyke. Good. Why? I don't know. Because the other three are figments of your fucking imagination! 
Kevin Smith is a filmmaker I love. I discover I feel like every young person who from the nineties and a lot of young film students love Kevin Smith because he's obtainable. You look at this you look at him, he's the middle class boy that done good. You know, he spends every dime he sp- spent every dime he had to make ch- to make clerks. And while he did go to film school, he didn't finish film school and he had a little bit of knowledge and probably was not as equipped as he could have been to make that film and he went off and made something and has a career now because of it. Um and there's a lot of there's always been a lot of hate for Kevin Smith online. People think he's un, he's unoriginal. Uh, and when he does try to do something different, people say it's not as good as his early films. It's just interesting the ridicule he's had. But I personally love him, and I think Chase and Amy is probably his best written and maybe even best directed film. Um, so Chase and Amy is the story of a comic book creator named Holden McNeil and his best friend Banky Edwards, played by Ben Affleck and Jason Lee, respectively. Um, they meet another comic book artist named Alyssa Jones, played by Joey, Joey Lauren Adams at a con- comic convention. Um, while there, Holden kind of falls for Alyssa and wants to... Falls for Alyssa and wants to hook up with her date or whatever, however you want to say it, um, only to find out that Alyssa is a lesbian. And he says that's fine. He just wants to be her friend. And they begin hanging out, and a friendship develops. But as time goes on, Holden can't hold in his feelings. Holden can't hold in his feelings. That sounds funny. Holden can't contain his feelings anymore, and he confesses his love to Alyssa. And she hates him for a little bit, but realizes she also has feelings for him. And then the rest of the film is kind of showing their relationship. And it's funny. It's sad. It's weirdly profound and while it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending it's got a satisfying ending um kevin smith has said the reason he wrote this film is not uh, he said he wrote it for joey lauren adams because he was dating her at the time but also about her uh not necessarily and he said not about her being a lesbian or anything like that but it was about his own inadequacies and feeling like she's done more and seen more of the world and how that made him jealous and that always kind of appealed to me because I one thing I've liked about Kevin Smith is while people kind of dismiss him for only being a filmmaker who writes dick and fart jokes, I've always respected the fact that he's never been afraid to be real and to put a lot of himself in a movie and make it personal. Um, you know, his his jer- his Jersey films have lo- have a lot of him in him. He pulls from his own real life, um, and while. The events of chasing Amy may, weren't necessarily real. They didn't actually happen to him. Um, it feels real. Um, it's probably some of the best perform, best acting that Ben Affleck's done. As goofy as he can be in this film, he feels real. You seemed weirded out back there. That's my couch you were fucking on. Sorry. Wanted to watch some TV. Hard to do when your best friend's wrapped around a naked rug muncher on your couch. She had boxers on. This is all gonna end badly. You don't know that. 
I know you. You're way too conservative for that girl. She's been around and seen things we've only read about in books. We have read about them, so we're prepared. There's no we here. You're gonna have to go through this alone. And it's one thing to read about shit, something different when you're forced to deal with it on a regular basis. When you guys are walking in the mall and both your heads turn out a really nice looking chick, it's gonna eat you up inside. You'll spend most of your time wondering when the other shoe's gonna drop. Because for you, this isn't about cool, weird sex stuff. It's about love. Maybe it is for her as well. Somehow I doubt it. But it's not to get someone in life back. Everybody has an agenda, all right? Everyone. Yourself? My agenda is to watch your back. To what end? To ensure that all this time we've spent together building something wasn't wasted. Oh, she's not going to ruin the comic. I wasn't talking about the comic. And I, I just think one thing I also like about uh, Kevin Smith as well. I was talking to, um, just mentioned to um, on Facebook very recently. Um, a friend of Kevin Smith named Vincent Pereira was posting about um, some of his favorite um, scenes in movies and some of his favorite shots. And he chose one from Chasing Amy um, of Holden and Alyssa laying in bed together. And he was talking about how he just loved the composition and the framing. And uh, I had mentioned to him that I think one of Kevin Smith's best qualities is that his style is minimalism because he was talking about how Kevin was a friend of his and people always say that Kevin's style he doesn't have a style and I was telling him I was like I disagree with that well I agree that he believes that Kevin Smith has a style and it's it's a very minimalist style uh he does not he Kevin jokes that he doesn't move the camera around very much because he doesn't know what to do with it but what comes from him not moving the camera is very interesting framing and he holds on this framing. And that very much is a style of its own. Without, I don't think he necessarily thinks about it this way, but his films are composed of a lot of long, long takes. And um, that's the way that, that's what I like in films. That's what I like to shoot with, um, is, is also this minimalist style. And um, his style in Chasing Amy really inspired me without even me realizing it. So, yeah, Chasing Amy. Next up is from 2007, so we're making a 10-year jump. Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. Oh, boy! Winnipeg. Winnipeg. Snowy, sleepwalking Winnipeg. My home for my entire life. I need to get out of here. I must leave it now. What if I film my way out of here? It's time for extreme measures. I sublet for one month the house in which I grew up. An action. Only here can I properly recreate the archetypal episodes from my family history. I hire actors to play my brothers and sister. My dog, Toby, to be played by my girlfriend's dog, Spanky. It's time to get to work. Mother, I had an accident. I ran into a deer. What were you doing out there? A track team party. Where did it happen? In the back seat. Mother, what happened? The real party. My mother. 
as perennial as the winter, as ancient as the bison, a magnetic pole, a direction from which I can't turn for long. An action. You have to feed us. My cooking days are over. We brought the parakeet with us. I'll call him off if you get up and make us some meatloaf. Right, right now. now. Once this filmed reenactment is complete, I can free myself from the heinous power of family and city and escape once and for all. Lifetime of many botched attempts. This time I'm leaving for good. Again. So I saw my Winnipeg for the first time in film school. Um, I actually got to see it in my experimental cinema class. Uh, we had to watch it for, uh, for class and come back and report to it. And the movie blew me away. So Guy Madden is a director that I will say I this is the only film I've seen by him, uh, but he's he's fascinating. Uh, the little bit I've read about him, but this film is a he describes it as a docufantasia, and he describes it as uh, a mixture of personal history, civic tragedy, and mystical hypothesizing. Uh, so it's kind of presented as a surrealist documentary. So what that means is the story is about guy madden he tells he tells his story of growing up in canada and uh he even casts an actor to play him um even though he's the one narrating it um and it's just kind of like this weird history of not only his life but canada that at times seems a little goofy and it also gets um very over the top and surrealistic um, which I which I really appreciate. Um, it's been I've not seen this film since I originally saw it, but it stuck with me so much that I talk about it all the time. I talk to it about a lot of people. Um, like weird little things he talks about in this film is, and it's on the poster, is about a a, a drove of horses that ran into a lake, and then the lake froze around them. And... Whittier Park, 1926, early in the winter. The first horrible snap of cold. A fire in the paddocks, started when a squirrel scorched itself on a power cable. The horses, panicked, frightened, wildly fleeing from the flames. One last race for their lives, out into that cruel snap of cold. No other way to escape the flames but to cross the Red River. Swimming in the current, swimming, fighting the current. That current clogging with jagged chunks of freeze-up. The ice takes on heft, deadliness. Horribly, everything clogs. Both horse and ice clog together. An ice and horse jam. Piles and paralyzes. Locks, locks each animal in place by its panicked, bulging neck. By its frenzied head. The heads stay this way for the whole winter. Five months at the forks. 
like eleven knights on a vast white chessboard, a great public spectacle. We grow used to the sadness, simply incorporated into our days. Soon, the Holly Snowshoe Club embarks on weekly jaunts out to the Horseheads and holds little jamborees there. Winter strollers visit the heads frequently, often on romantic rambles. Lovers gather to sit among, or even on, the frozen heads for picnics or to spoon beneath the moonlit dome of our city. The horse heads are always frozen in those same transports of animal panic and abandonment reading unambiguously to the young lovers of Winnipeg. The city enjoys a tremendous baby boom the following autumn. He also talks about like hockey rinks and he just makes up his own history for everything. And I love it. I love that um, it feels very much like a story I would have told as a kid where if I saw a weird looking interesting building and I didn't know the history of it, I would make it up and just say, oh, that's the building where, you know, 1500 rail workers perished to death and you can still hear them moaning to this day. Well, maybe not necessarily ghost stories like I always tend to do, but I love that he adds his own weird history to this and you don't know what's truth, what's fiction, because from doing some research on this film is he is... He is mixing truth into this film. and uh, But he has got so much craziness around it that you never know what's actually true. And I like that. Uh, the film is endlessly fascinating. It's weirdly shot. And I can't say enough good about it. So Guy Madden's My Winnipeg. And finally, in my top ten, is... From two from 2011, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place. I give you a five-minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes, and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. So you just moved to LA? No, I've been here for a while. What do you do? I drive for movies. Dangerous. It's only part time. You put this kid behind the wheel. There's nothing he can't do. Kid, I want you to meet Mr. Bernie Rose. My hands are a little dirty. So am I. My husband's coming home. Where is he? He's in prison. There's some guys that want me to do a job for him, and I'm not gonna do it. What is that you got there? One of those men gave you that? What's the job? Get your money. His debt's paid. You never go near his family again. <gasps> Did you have any idea there'd be a second car? He said there'd be another car to hold us up. Whose money do I have? I'm gonna tell you something. Anybody finds out we're both dead. That's why this driver's gotta go, Bernie. He's gotta go. No. 
Any dreams you have or plans for your future, I think you're going to have to put that on hold. For the rest of your life, you're going to be looking over your shoulder. Drive has been one of my favorite films since I've seen it, since I, since I originally see it, saw it. And it's I think it's one of the best films of the 2000s. Um, and while I love everything that Nicholas Winding Refn's done, uh, for better or for worse, because there's a lot of people out there who don't like his style, they use style for style's sake, and he's got no, um, what is it called? He's got no heart behind what he does. I just personally think he, he's fascinating. So Drive, going on again, again with my, my movie love, it stars Ryan Gosling, and he is playing a Hollywood stunt driver who moonlights as a getaway driver. Uh, the very first scene is like a 20-minute sequence of just him driving through California, um, sorry, Los Angeles, and uh, getting away from the cops. He's been hired for a job. Um, and the film is just a slice-of-life type of film about the driver, which is his name in the film, getting through life. He's trying to make a better life for himself. Uh, the film also start. Uh, he works together with Brian Cranston, Brian Cranston's character, who is a mechanic, who is also his manager, and is kind of the big reason behind of what what all happens in this film. Because Brian Cranston is trying to make some money, um, but they both are, and Brian Cranston feels like the um, the best way to. You know, stunts are only going to get so far. You need you need to be a little bit of crime in your life to to make some money. Um, and he wants to. He knows he can make some money off the kid, off the driver, uh, not in a bad way. But he wants to. He wants to get a stock car together because he he thinks it's like you know this kid's one of the best drivers I've ever seen. He's fantastic at everything he does. If we can get a stock car around him, we can. He could be a big name, and we can get ourselves out of this life. And Brian, you get the idea that Brian Cranston's character used to be a good driver until he hurt his legs, and he's just been trying to pull his way back up. And his good friend, played by Albert Brooks, is kind of the connection between him and this big mob boss. And the mob boss will only give him, he said, I'll give you some money, but you need to do a job for me first. And um, so the driver has to go and do this, do this job, and it turns out to be a, a setup. And... Then you, they kind of lead him down this road of intrigue, and uh, but at the same time, the driver's falling in love with his next door neighbor, and is kind of torn between: um, Do I continue this life? Do I finish this job and get out? Wh- do I have a future with this woman? Yeah, it's just a fascinating crime story. Um, it's very understated. The score and soundtrack are amazing. And uh, not a week goes by where I don't think of this movie. And um, it's one of those things, too, where I, I kind of like judge how well I'm going to get along with someone, whether how much they like Drive. Don't get me wrong. I like, I'm friends with people who don't like this movie, but I can tell if someone else likes this movie that we're going to have very similar tastes. So, Hi, this is Josh Olson. You're watching Trailers from Hell. There's a lot of movies I love that are great. And there's a lot of movies I love that I understand why some people hate them. I mean, everybody has their own taste, and there's a bunch of films that, you know, I love them. I get why you hate them. I could even write a book on why you hate them, but I love them anyway. 
But I want to talk about a film right now that I love, that a lot of people hate. I have no clue why they hate it. None of them have ever been able to explain it to me adequately. It makes no sense. This is one of the greatest films of, of recent vintage. Uh, a personal favorite of mine. This is Drive. If I drive for you, you give me a time and a place. I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours, no matter what. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. Beautifully directed, Drive is a love letter to everything that's good in the world, from early Michael Mann films to early Walter Hill films to Donald Westlake's Parker novels, and really, what else is there? There's so much to talk about with Drive, I, I'm just going to pick a couple of things that I uh, particularly love. One is the spare, lean nature of the script and the dialogue. So much is left unsaid. I become increasingly psychotic about useless exposition in movies, characters just talking endlessly about shit we know, telling us who they are, telling us what they're thinking, telling us what they're about to do, telling us what they've just done. Drive has none of that. It's, it's, it's all about film. It's all about cinema with this. The, the scene where Ryan Gosling and Carey Mulligan first come together is, is done all without dialogue. He sees her in a grocery store, cut to the parking lot. He sees her loading her groceries into the car, having trouble with them. Cut to them in the elevator. He's helping her carry her bags upstairs. Cut to them in her apartment. She's giving him some water. And an entire movie has happened in between. And we don't need to hear the fucking dialogue. It's, it's all in their looks. It's all in the shots. It's just absolutely beautiful. You can't talk about Drive without talking about Albert Brooks's amazing performance. He's just, he's terrifying. I'm sure it was his idea to shave off his eyebrows, but it's just the most frightening thing a human being can do. And, and he just sells it. He's brilliant. But one of the things I really love about this film that I've never heard anybody else talk about, and it may just be me, although I've had it somewhat confirmed since then, I'm fascinated by Gosling's decision to play the character as essentially Rain Man. He's an autistic savant. I started to feel this the first time watching the film, and then watching it again, I realized that's what he's doing. His driver, an unnamed character, is very quiet, very emotionally distant. He has a hard time relating to anybody. Uh, except children, who he's very fond of, and he has a ferocious, violent temper that uh, comes out in some explosive scenes. But he's brilliant, like Rain Man. He gets behind the wheel of a car, and he can drive it anywhere, take it anywhere, do anything with it. It's a really interesting idea, and it really works in this film. It's very subversive and twisted and funny, and I, I, I love that about it. Any dreams you have or plans for your future, I think you're going to have to put that on hold. It's, it's fantastic. Well, everything on this list, in my personal opinion. So that's my top ten. Um, like I said, I, it's, it's kind of weird doing these episodes without having to talk to someone. And um, I haven't rewatched a lot of these films in a while. So if I didn't go into as much detail as you'd like, I'm so sorry. But, you know, I've only got so much time in my hands. Um, before we wrap up, because I have been talking for a little bit, I might save um, talking about Inside Lewin Davis for another time. Instead, I'm just going to talk about the Vinegar Syndrome release I had just gotten called The Corruption of Chris Miller. Chris Miller, played by former Spanish child star Marisol, lives with her stepmother Ruth, played by Jean Seberg from Breathless, in a large secluded mansion in the countryside. Both women have been traumatized by the mysterious disappearance of Chris's father, but their isolation is soon interrupted by the arrival of mysterious young drifter, Barney, who they take on as a handyman. Barney's also played by Barry Stokes, who was in the movie Prey, which I reviewed many episodes ago that I really liked. All the while, an unknown sickle-wielding 
killer has been stalking the area, leaving an ever-growing body count, and it's not long before the women grow increasingly suspicious of Barney. A bloody and twist-filled giallo from acclaimed filmmaker Juan Antonio Bardem, who directed Death of a Cyclist, the corruption of Chris Miller has remained one of the hardest to see of all the Spanish-produced jolly. Washly photographed by Juan, G- Juan Gelpi, Crypt of the Living Dead, and scored by Waldo de, la- de los Rios, House That Screamed, Vinegar Syndrome is proud to present this underseen masterpiece of early 70s Euro horror in a brand new 4K restoration and in its original scope framing for the first time on home video. We never know when something is going to happen. And when it does, everything changes at once. The corruption of Chris Miller. Two women who hate each other. Join together to protect themselves from a mad killer. He's in the library. He can't have locked all the windows. There must be some way out. The corruption of Chris Miller. Gene Seberg. Marisol. Barry Stokes. The corruption of Chris Miller. Chris Miller was an interesting film because it was the least Vinegar Syndrome film I feel like I have seen since they've been sending me stuff. Um, it's a very classy made film, which I appreciate. Um, it's, in, it's inspired by the Jalo film genre, as they said in the back of the box. Um, it's a very meandering film and not in a bad way it's i guess um um, slow burn would be the better way to describe it because the film opens up with a a pretty graphic murder um and that's kind of like what whets your appetite it's after this original murder where this actress gets killed uh by a man dressed in a charlie chaplin costume which is kind of funny we then hard cuts to a uh, a train and getting off the train is barney uh, a young drifter and uh, he's kind of wandering around, and then throughout that we get to learn, we get to see the 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 day in and day out life of Ruth and her stepdaughter Chris. It's everything from yelling at each other; they're constantly arguing. You can tell that they might love each other, but they don't necessarily like each other very much. Chris is constantly expecting her father to write, and Ruth is pretty much giving up all hope in him. thinks he's a piece of shit and wants nothing to do with him anymore. Um, and Chris um, loves her father so much, cannot believe that her father has not written to her. Um, and Chris also has like, got a dark past where every time a thunderstorm, she has these traumatic episodes of screaming. And throughout the course of the film, you find out what happened to her. And it's pretty, it's, it's never specifically said what's happened. But if you're paying attention, you, you can pretty much deduce what's, what happened. Um, and, uh, very graphic like it's not very graphic in that, in that we see it but what you can assume happened was very graphic um so she gets these screaming fits but um one of these thunderstorms our 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 wonderful drifter barry gets lost and uh he decides to stay in their barn 
Um, next morning, Ruth finds Barney, and uh, there's some flirtation between them. She is kind of on the fence about whether or not she should call the cops. Eventually invites him in for some coffee and breakfast, and they end up screwing each other. And then from there, the um, you kind of get the feeling that Ruth and Chris are fighting over Barney because he's an attractive young man. Ruth likes having Barney around because he's more than willing to have sex all with her. But you can tell he's more interested in Chris and Chris is letting her guard down and starting to trust him. But then there's this sinisterness, right, you know, running throughout it of the murder that we saw at the beginning of the film had just come to light. And now there's police investigating it and they're sniffing around the town and they're thinking, well, here's this young guy who just showed up out of nowhere. Maybe he's the one to blame. And it becomes kind of a murder mystery whodunit film throughout the span of it, too. And has a very interesting, but also very satisfied ending that made me and my wife kind of both yell out loud. Um, it's slow. It's, and it's about hour 50. Um, so it's a longer film. It takes its time. But if you do what we did and put it on during a thunderstorm late at night and turn off all the lights and just kind of let yourself get engrossed into it. The Corruption of Chris Miller is a great film. Um, it, in terms of quality, it might even be one of the best releases that Vinegar Syndrome put out. And it's very unlike said, some of the, the schlocky fare they put out. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I just love that Vinegar Syndrome's got such a deep catalog of interests that you'll get films like The Corruption of Chris Miller. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to watch any of the features yet, but on the, the disc is a newly scanned and restored... In, it's newly scanned and restored in 4K from its 35mm original negative... Archival career respective interview with director Juan Antonio Bardem. Gene Seberg, movie star, a short film exploring the tragic life of Gene Seberg. English and Spanish sound mixes. Alternative Spanish ending. Alternative Spanish insert shot. Alternative Spanish title sequence. Original theatrical trailer, reversal artwork, and English subtitles. But yeah, that's our episode, guys. Thanks for listening. I know it's a little bit of a thrown together hodgepodge of an episode, but I wanted to make sure there's something out here for you uh we love everyone that listens to this show me and nick will be back very shortly we're planning our dark crystal episode which will be i think the next episode and then after that we were probably going to finally do our shameful picture show episode pardon me where we discuss super mario brothers and masters of the universe you know unless something changes uh before we wrap up we've got two reviews that i want to read out loud First is from a user named Stalwart Gamer. He gave us five stars. Um, the um, heading says fun and easy to listen to. These guys and their guests are fantastic. I love the running jokes and references. I haven't seen half of these films, and the episodes make me want to go out and discover them. So thank you very much, Stalwart Gamer. I really appreciate that. Uh, the next one is done by... Friend of the show and one-time co-host, Katie Cadaver. Her head- headline, which was cut off, says unique and thoughtful, I assume it says film analysis. Um, also gave us five stars. She said, Michael and Nick put on an excellent show. 
They do a great job digging deep into each film, and their discussions are thoughtful, informed, and a lot of fun. Production value is definitely a step up from most independent podcasts, and I really appreciate the care and attention put into each episode. Listening to episodes discussing films I've already seen is my favorite part my favorite way to consume shameless picture show but even if i haven't seen the film being discussed i still enjoy those episodes a lot the milk creek and vinegar syndrome review episodes are greatly appreciated as well i've added several titles to my watch list keep up the amazing work guys so that made me feel fantastic so thank you everyone who has listened who has written reviews um it's really it really is helping us uh i love you all as always, guys, rate, review, and subscribe. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, um, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. I think I already said that one. Pretty much everywhere. And if we're not on your podcast app of choice, let me know, and I'll make sure I personally reach out to them and get us on there. Um, as always, we're on Instagram at, at Shameless Picture Show. I am at Michael underscore Virus, and Nick is at a word worth 1,000 picks. Um, thanks a lot for listening, guys. We'll be back.